tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Black women activists around the turn of the 20th century with Brittany Cooper, who's Associate Professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so we're going to be talking about several uh, thinkers from this period, and I thought I could start maybe by asking you to just sketch the more general historical situation in terms of the role played by Black women activists and organizations for Black women around the turn of the century? I mean, around the turn of the 20th century. Yes. Uh, so during the end of the Reconstruction period, which happens in the 1890s, there's a violent backlash against Black male figures who had moved around in the public. There's a drastic increase in lynchings. This is one of the reasons that you see Ida B. Wells's career as an anti-lynching activist taking off beginning in 1892, but it tracks with a series of violent attacks on Black people being pushed off of public conveyances, which in the 1860s, the 1870s, and some part of the 1880s had been desegregated. So there's this violent backlash going on after the Reconstruction period, and ultimately it comes to culminate in 1896 in the legal installation of Jim Crow laws, which make separate but equal or legalized segregation the law of the land. And so part of what then happens is that Black women activists come to the fore at that moment because Black men are being pushed out of the public sphere. And at the same time, you have the rise of what's known as the progressive era in the U.S. And there's this discourse among white women about how they are the new women going into the 20th century, how this is woman's era and the progressive era. And so Black women capitalize on those discourses and on this kind of vacuum of racial leadership particularly in the period after Frederick Douglass passes away in 1895. And they say, this is our opportunity to begin to speak on behalf of the race and to begin to advocate for racial equality and to advocate for a different set of conditions for Black women. So they form the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. At the height of that organization, it has over 100,000 Black women that are part of the membership. And they begin to use that organization, which has a strong national organizing body and then lots of local and state-based chapters to do national organizing of women in Black communities across the country and to begin to inculcate these ideas about racial progressivism, about women's right to lead, about anti-lynching activism, all of the sorts of concerns that affect Black communities are filtered through this organizational lens. And so Black women sort of stake their claim and say, we are new women as well, uh, and it's our time. You mentioned the NACW there. Um, And one of the leading figures in that movement was named Fanny Barrier Williams, and she's someone you've written about. Something you said that really caught my eye about her is that there are phrases and theoretical terminology, one might say, that we associate with some male figures from that era. So one might think of W.E.B. Du Bois brings in phrases like the talented 10th and double consciousness, which are still mainstays of um, analysis in the philosophy of race, for example. 
And you point out that Williams, Fanny Barrier Williams, actually also introduced several phrases like this. So for example, organized anxiety, American peculiarity, race, public opinion, racial sociality. So very theoretically loaded terms. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that this terminology that she introduced doesn't get taken up in the same way. Yes. So Fanny Barrow Williams is one of my favorite Black women figures from this time period. And part of the reason is that she, if she had been born in any other moment, she would have been considered a serious theorist. So she's reading political theorists. She's taking classes when she gets the opportunity uh, at the University of Chicago where she lives and where her husband is a law partner to Ida B. Wells's husband. And so they move around kind of in similar social circles. The challenge is that Fannie Barrier Williams had grown up in New York and, and it had been desegregated in upstate New York even during the 1800s for her, whereas Ida B. Wells grows up kind of rough and tumble down south with her parents passing away. So there would be these class divisions between the two of them, but still they were comrades and they were connected through the club women's movement. And so Fanny Barrier Williams is always trying to think about social phenomena and to give names to those social phenomena. And so in my work, part of what I try to do is make the case to see these Black women who are contemporaries of somebody like W.B. Du Bois as thinkers and theorists who are actively making the case that they should be considered intellectuals. And so you see Fanny Barrier Williams make that case herself in this speech she gives in 1892 at the Columbian Exposition uh, entitled The Intellectual Progress of Colored Women. And so she makes a set of arguments about why Black women matter intellectually to the progress of the United States. So doing an extensive review of many of the things that she wrote and the speeches she gave beginning in the 1890s, I started to see all of these concepts bubbling up in her work. So in 1897, she says really clearly, as she's thinking about what it means to be connected to working class Black communities that are coming out of enslavement, that are really in a different class position that she's in as an elite Black woman, she says, well, we need a new sociality, right? And she says that that sociality is to be distinguished from society. So part of the challenge is that she can't get past her own kind of class elitism, but she does have a clear set of commitments to what it means for her to be a Black person, and she's trying to understand what is the nature of racial sociology, what are the bonds that connect Black people if we don't make these kind of genetic arguments about race, which is to say that she's an anti-essentialist before we know what it means to be an anti-essentialist, right? She argues for new sociality. She is also reading lots of political theory about, like, so reading de Tocqueville, reading, you know, other folks thinking about these issues of public opinion. And she says and makes the claim that the National Association of Colored Women creates race public opinion because of the way that their state and local and national organizing model creates this kind of feedback loop in Black communities. So she says this is the first organization that has some pulse or input or insight about what may be called, in her words, race public opinion, which is to say that she's making an argument about Black communities as a kind of political actor or as, you know, a political sector of the American populace. And she really tries to name what she thinks is happening socially and sociologically within Black communities. So I think that that's 
part of her work. You know, her term American peculiarity is, I think, a really important corrective to this idea of American exceptionalism. So she keeps saying that it's America's peculiar position as a country that both claims equality, but then has this issue of plantation slavery always at its core that has shaped Black women's lives. And that it's not just a kind of peculiarity about the racial dimensions of it, but it is also the way in which Americans never want to acknowledge that there are class divisions, that there are racial divisions. They just like to claim that they're equal and that everybody has a shot, even in the 1800s, right? Even when she knows better. So they just saying to Black people, well, you're free now. You can be anything you want to be. And she says, this is this kind of peculiarly American condition where we limit the rights of people to citizenship, or we limit their rights to advance, and then we resent them for talking about it. So, you know, she's a real theorist, a real thinker, someone who's really trying to name things. And last, you know, I pulled out the concept of organized anxiety in her work because she uses that exact phrase. And part of the thing that I'm trying to challenge is this idea in feminist theory where there's this kind of new focus on reclaiming a kind of materiality to the work that we do and using affect theory as one place to reclaim a kind of material notion about Black life and about life in general, that she's really engaged in a kind of old material conception of thinking about affect. And she says that there is this kind of internal anxiety that drives much of the organizing that Black women were doing, this anxiety about both wanting to resist the march of Jim Crow on the one hand, and this kind of aspirational anxiety to achieve as much as possible as they could uh, for Black people, especially with Reconstruction in the rear view, but still lingering on the tongue, so to speak, of Black people who had tasted freedom and then had it snatched away. And so that's a really affective conception of Black life together with her notions of sociality. And I think that we should be understanding Black women as having always had something to say about affect and about kind of like a material understanding of, of racial identity. And so she's interesting. And I think too that the fact that she understands this in non-essentialist ways, as we would say it today, suggests that there is a way in Black women's thought that this kind of false binary that gets imposed between like nature and culture or between like discourse and the material, that Black women always reject that when you look at their thought across time. So. Actually, so you just said a lot of really interesting things there. I just want to latch on to one of them, which is um, that she's a fairly uh, elite woman, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to someone like Wells, as you mentioned, and we'll get on to Wells later. Um, and you actually, at one point in your writing on Williams, quote her as referring to the better side of the colored race, mm-hmm. which does sound pretty elitist. But some yeah. of what you just said um, suggested that she is actually trying to forge bonds across class within the black race in the United States. Is that true? Yeah. All of those ladies were, for the most part, very elitist. Uh, I think we should just say that outright. The, the women that I studied, the club women, many of them had had some access to education, even if they weren't able to formally complete full training and a degree. Or they had husbands who were well-to-do because they were attorneys or they were in some other profession where these women could be considered middle class. So they had and they imbibed and they propagated some of these ideas about Black working class people as being immoral, as being lazy, uh, as bringing the race down by setting a bad example. 
Fannie Barrier Williams was not above buying into those class conceptions and class distinctions. And some of that had to do with the fact that she had had elite access to education, to literacy, uh, and to, be, to being a kind of social and cultural influencer throughout her life. So she didn't come out of a history of slavery. In fact, she goes from the North to the South as a young person in her 20s to educate you know, children in Black colleges, but that had not been her particular story growing up in upstate New York. So, so yes, she is an elitist. Many of these women are. And some challenge around writing about the thought of Black women is that we have to look at where we have an archive of that thought. Uh, and so the folks who leave the archive are people who are typically literate, people who are typically connected to organizations, uh, and folks who often had some kind of educational background. That means that there's already a, a kind of inherent bias in what it means to do these long histories of political thought. But one of the reasons that I resisted the kind of critiques that then said, well, then why would you write the history of Black women's intellectual thought in this way, is because in some ways, the history of all thought up to a particular moment is the history of the elites in those respective races and classes and so forth. Uh, that's true for white men who have access to literacy and education and all of those things across time. And that hasn't kept us from telling the stories that need to be told about how these folks are trying to understand their condition. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, more generally in the podcast, I'm often aware that like telling the history of philosophy to a large extent is always telling the history of the elites, right? Absolutely. So we should get on to talking about some of the other figures in this movement. And one of them is Mary Church Terrell. And again, there's a, a phrase that she focused on or brought, brought into the discussion, which is dignified agitation. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could explain what that means and how it might relate to another term that's sometimes used today, which is respectability politics. Sure. So Mary Church Terrell is the denizen of respectability politics. <laughs> when Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham coins that term thinking about Black women in her 1993 book, Righteous Discontent, one of the women that she's quoting from a lot is Mary Church Terrell or Terrell, depending on who you ask, who is the president of the NACW. She's the first president of the NACW. And so she talks about poor Black women as lowly and vicious and says that, you know, we would rather leave them behind, but we really can't because basically white people connect us to these women. So our job is to lift as we climb and to elevate their status as we seek to elevate our own. So Mary Church Terrell has really interesting and quite frankly terrible class politics like many of these women do. But she's also really clear about how horrible white supremacy is. She spends her life committed to fighting it at every level. She lives to be 90 years old. And so she literally is born in 1863 and dies in 1954. So that's the year of the Emancipation Proclamation to the year of Brown versus Board of Education. So she is an activist in World War I, World War II. She is active in the civil rights movement. She is active in the club movement. All of those turn of century Black movements, she's a part of them. And so that is where I'm like reading her work. And in this speech, she begins to talk about this concept of dignified agitation, which were her words. And essentially she said, look, we do have to agitate against white supremacy. We have to call it out. We have to not mince words. We have to 
not tell sort of bad jokes or jokes at the expense of Black people, which is something that Booker T. Washington had often been accused of doing. But she said, we have this duty to be dignified in our approach to it. And so she wanted agitation, but she didn't want a, a particular level of militancy. And I therefore read her as bridging two periods of Black life. The politics of respectability is a strategy that Black people create in the aftermath of Reconstruction because they've been abandoned by the government and they're being left largely down South with a bunch of angry white people who now have been unleashed on them. And so they make this calculation that they will comport themselves, that they will dress properly, that they will speak dignified English, that they will get educated, that they will not commit crime, all of it as a, a bid for survival against a kind of angry white supremacist backlash that is being installed in the Jim Crow era. And so that is, so even though we understand respectability politics today is quite conservative, it is the only option that these people have given the political circumstances they face. Well, by the time Mary Church Terrell moves on into the 20th century, she begins to understand that she had more rights in her life as a young woman living in the 1880s and 1890s than she has in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And she begins to say that. And so then she gets involved with nonviolent direct action or the, the kind of strategy of the civil rights movement. She helps to bring the court case that desegregates the District of Columbia one year before Brown versus Board of Education desegregates the country. And so I argue that dignified agitation is the bridge between the politics of respectability and nonviolent direct action. That it is a, a theory of change, a theory about how you challenge power that seeks to bridge this kind of old conservatism that's about survival with this kind of coming attempt to throw off the vestiges of that and say that we're going to challenge this racial suppression forthrightly. And she becomes the bridge figure because she lives across all of these time periods and she's active and trained in all these movements. And so I think she needs to get credit as being a person who offers us a middle ground in this moment of transition from the early 20th century to the mid 20th century around what black political strategies to combat racism are going to be. Yeah, it's amazing that I mean, people don't know very much about her, yet, you know, they might think of, let's say, Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King, but actually she she fuses those two moments in American history. That's really amazing. Um, yeah, she, she's a suffragist. She's a peace activist. I mean, Mary Church Terrell is, you know, incredibly important to the history of the 20th century. And there's a moment in which she is perhaps the most famous Black woman public intellectual in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. She goes on national lecture tours. She's paid for her work. She's writing, she's giving speeches. She has one of the earliest critiques of the gender politics of the convict leasing system, where she's talking about, you know, the issue of carcerality and how it affects Black women very specifically. And that's in 1913, I believe. Uh, and it's a, you know, really extensive speech. And she makes these arguments about how jails and prisons were set up to basically reinstantiate slavery. And then she talks about the terrible things that have happened to Black women in those systems. And so uh, as a thinker, she's really on the pulse of so many of the, the issues that still face us today. One of the words that came up a lot in your description of her is her thought is dignity. 
And that yeah. reminds me of a sentence that you quote at the beginning of your book about all these activist figures. And this is a quote from Anna Julia Cooper, which was actually also quoted by W.E.B. Du Bois. So you're in good company. And um, so I'm just going to read out this sentence and ask you to say something about it. Yeah. Only the Black woman can say when and where I enter in the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood, without violence and without suing or special patronage, then and there the whole race enters with me. Yes. Look, that statement could be considered the mission statement of a Black feminist project, quite frankly. Black women have loved that one line from her 1892 book, A Voice from the South, Forever, Paula Giddings' wonderful, groundbreaking history of Black women from 1984 is called When and Where I Enter. And so many generations of Black women thinkers have read A Voice from the South and encountered that moment where Cooper is challenging Martin Delaney. Essentially, Martin Delaney would, you know, was a Black nationalist, a doctor, uh, you know, a colonizationist, all, an advocate for all kinds of things in Black life. And you know, he would say that when he entered the Council of Kings, the whole race entered with him. And some part of that was him making an argument that because he called himself full-blooded African, he didn't find any white people in his bloodline, so he claimed. So he was basically saying that his bloodline had not been sullied by white people. And so Cooper really is doing something quite sophisticated when she says, I bring everybody with me. I bring Black men because I am or could be the mother of Black children. I also bring these histories of racial violence with me because I am the daughter of an enslaved mother and a plantation owner. I bring the, the entirety of Black experience in the Americas with me into any room, and therefore my experience becomes the most expansive and inclusive experience for representing Black life. Uh, and to me, that is the argument that Black feminism has always made about its insistence upon thinking and talking about gender. That sentence also has a critique. You know, it says, look, we don't want inclusion with violence. We don't want inclusion by even having to sue the system. We don't want inclusion because we need to know somebody. We understand freedom to be the nonviolent, unfettered access to any rooms wherein we can advocate for ourselves or make our voices heard. And so the clarity with which she understands the terms of the struggle is I think why that statement has been so galvanizing so for so many subsequent generations of those of us who call ourselves Black feminist thinkers. Do you think this is also a way of her answering what might have been perceived as a tension at the time between the demands of Black activism and the demands of feminist activism? Because of course, um, if you think about someone like Frederick Douglass, right, this is something we've talked about, that they're is this rather uneasy relationship between the suffragist movement and the movement that Douglas was leading to get voting rights, for example, for black men rather than sure. women? Sure. Um, you know, I think she could be seen as responding to that, but I think that she's actually just in the tradition of black women who were never not thinking about how their gender influenced their own kind of access. And so Black women were always challenging Black men. As far back as the 1830s with Mariah Stewart, they were saying to Black men and to Black communities, what is happening with Black women and girls? And are you talking about and thinking about our issues? So 
it would be more believable to me that someone like a Mary Church Carroll or an Ida B. Wells would actually be kind of taking on Douglas and some of the sexism that attended to some of his politics. And they do take him on very kind of slyly 30 to 40 years later, largely by talking about what kind of romantic choices he was making. And so they had lots to say about, you know, his personal life. But Anna Julia Cooper is really trying to make a set of arguments about why Black women matter. And she's challenging particular institutions. So she's challenging the church. She's challenging Black men. She's challenging higher education. She takes aim at these very large structures that shape American life and then says, A, women matter, and, and then very particularly Black women matter. And so throughout A Voice from the South, she is straight up mocking with wonderful snark uh black men and you know she says look like you know when it comes down to thinking about colored women they go back into the 17th century even though they're super progressive about everything else right she is a wonderfully funny writer and sometimes you can miss it because of the flowery kind of language of the victorian era but Anna Julia Cooper is laugh out loud, roll on the floor funny in the way that she's just snarky towards everybody because she's essentially saying, it's obvious that what I'm saying is the most reasonable position. What is wrong with these people? And so that's also why she's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it would more generally be true to say that all of these authors and thinkers are well aware of this phenomenon that's now called intersectionality. So the kind of unique position that you occupy if you're both an African-American and a woman. Right. So that's a theme that runs through a lot of what you've been saying. One person that we can't end without discussing is someone whose name has already come up several times. We could talk about her for hours, probably. And this is Ida B. Wells, yeah, uh, who I have to say is one of, I think, one of the most fascinating figures we've covered in the last several dozen podcasts. And she's now still famous and maybe seen as uh, currently relevant because of her leadership for the movement to end lynching. She was also one of the founders of the NACW. So there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but maybe uh, I'll just end by asking you to say something about the role that gender played in her anti-lynching activism. Sure. I mean, let me say more generally that this is one of the things that has annoyed me about the way that Ida B. Wells has come to popularity because Black men love Ida B. Wells, but they love her because to the extent that we understand the anti-lynching movement as a movement to protect Black men's manhood rights, and we sort of see the iconic figures of lynching as being Black men who were, you know, rather than the women and children who were also lynched, then very often Ida B. Wells is taken up by lots of Black male scholars in ways that they don't take up these other women because Black men, there's a way in which Black men occupy the critical center of a lot of her early activism. But Ida B. Wells from very early has a critique of the way that Black male leaders in her community shamed her for going to the sites of these lynchings and doing investigations and told her that she needed to be home taking care of children. They told her that she was basically stealing their thunder if she didn't, you know, that she needed to step back so that men could step up, that she was out of her place. And so she was critiquing the gender politics of what it meant to be a, a female race leader who was being actively asked to go away and let some other man do the work that she was doing, even though she was pioneering new methods for how you studied lynching. She was pioneering sociological methods in the mid-1890s that were 
frankly just being invented at the University of Chicago. And so she is part of this movement for a kind of sociological approach by thinking about the numbers, classifying what's, what's happening, the types of lynchings and incidents. Uh, that early cataloging work, she is really a pioneer of it. And I also think it's important to remember that Ida B. Wells can't be left in the late 19th century or even the early 20th century in terms of her activism. She is an active member of the suffragist movement. She is writing in the 1910s about the connection between the vote and ending lynching. And so she says really clearly that any time the government is willing to take a black person's vote away, they are not far then, she says, from taking his life away. That's her in 1910. So she says the vote is a critical lever to end lynching. And much of her activism in Illinois means that it becomes the first state to give women the right to vote statewide. She is, helps to put together and participate in the 1913 suffrage march. So this is the year that we're celebrating or commemorating 100 years of the passage of the 19th Amendment. And Ida B. Wells is on the front lines of that struggle. She's one of the most well-known Black women suffragists. She and Mary Church Terrell are two of the most well-known Black women suffragists of that time period. And she understands that activism as a way to protect Black life and as a way to protect women's rights to be able to say something and to be able to have a voice and to participate. Okay, well, that's a pretty good note to end on, I think. Um, <laughs> we are going to be moving on next to another figure who's a sort of turn-of-the-century figure. This is Henry McNeil Turner who made waves in his own day for saying, for example, that God is a Negro and was still active in this debate that we've been looking at a lot about whether African-Americans should emigrate to Africa. So that's what we'll be talking about next time. For now, I'll thank Brittany Cooper very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That was fantastic. And uh, please join me and Chike next time as we look at Henry McDill Turner here on the History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles when I get